40% of all food that ends up at a grocery store ends up in the dumpster. And then 30% of food that comes home ends up in the garbage can. So I, I think there's a lot of different issues around that, that I think food can be distributed more equitably around the country in different pockets of what they call food deserts. Even in California here, because it takes 26 gallons of water to grow one head of romaine lettuce. So now that we're kind of into what some scientists are calling the beginning of a four or five year drought, like thinking through that sad head of lettuce in your crisper, why would you let that rot? You gotta use it. Before any world changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. I was really excited to have today's guest on the show because, truth be told, I'm one of his biggest fans. Tyler Florence was one of the early faces of the Food Network. After bursting onto the New York culinary scene as a young chef in the 1990s, he was quickly noticed by the fledgling network. And within two years, thanks to shows like Food 911 and Tyler's Ultimate, he was one of its biggest stars. He went on to write more than a dozen cookbooks and after moving to Northern California in 2007, opened Wayfair Tavern, which is still one of my favorite restaurants in San Francisco. But Tyler's story isn't just about restaurants and television. Like many of the innovators we speak with on Before It Happened, Tyler has managed to use his entrepreneurial spirit to build on his initial successes and put it to use on a much larger scale. Today, Tyler is a mogul who's launched his own line of organic baby food, invested in several innovative food startups, and is building out a growing multimedia empire. In addition to his array of popular cookbooks, he has even directed a well-received documentary on the 2018 Wine Country wildfires in Northern California. But he's also become a prominent voice for ending world hunger, teaming up with the United Nations World Food Program to address food insecurity around the globe. So while he still may be best known for his TV work, Tyler has quietly become an influential voice on the future of food around the world. Tyler grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. His parents were divorced and he grew up as what he calls a typical 80s latchkey kid. One of four brothers, he gravitated towards skateboarding and the anarchy of punk rock. But when he wasn't out causing trouble with his friends, he was teaching himself how to cook. 
Well, that latchkey kid thing, there's something interesting about that because you really have to fend for yourself. Like there's no, you know, my mom would shop and fill the fridge full of food. But if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to eat, you had to figure out that refrigerator stove relationship between the stuff in here that's cold. And then this piece of equipment in the kitchen makes it hot. And you have to kind of figure out how to use that. And so that's where I, I really started playing around in the kitchen as a kid, just out of necessity. For example, we would take um, the frozen burritos and pop them into the microwave just enough to shake off the ice on the outside and make the tortillas pliable so you can pry it open and then restuff it with more cheese and then fold it over one more time. And then I would I would pop it back in the microwave to, to heat the beans all the way through. And then take it out and then literally treat it like a grilled cheese sandwich that so would melt some butter and then just toast it on one end to the other and then put some sour cream on top of it. And it was a hit. I was running a very successful nonprofit restaurant out of my mom's house in the afternoons. I love it. Very successful nonprofit. So in terms of food influence, you know, who was more influential, your father or your mother? Well, it, you know, both were interesting. And I, I get that question a lot. And then my mom always gets mad at me when she hears the answer. And then and my dad does too. But I really just, I kind of raised myself. I mean, my, my parents both worked full time and then they were just kind of living separate lives. So, you know, I was kind of bouncing between house, one house to the other. And, you know, what I did in my own particular interests and, you know, because I had an older brother in one house and I had two younger brothers in another house. And so there was a lot going on and definitely that sort of that middle child, you know, invisibility where as long as you're not hurt and you're not being loud, just sort of enjoy yourself and whatever you want to do, you can do. So I just really kind of fell in love with cooking. I'll take a step back because I, I think this is kind of interesting too. Like I had really severe food allergies growing up as a child. So when I was uh, 14 months old, I was having like really hard allergic reactions to just about anything and everything and, and was very sick, incredibly sick little child. And so my parents took me to Emory University in Atlanta and had a scratch test on my back. And out of uh, 75 things a child my age could possibly be allergic to, I was allergic to 42 of them. So I had like really hard, severe allergies growing up and, and I had a very limited diet. Like I could eat salmon. I mean, dig this. I could eat salmon. I could eat lentils. I could uh, drink goat's milk. Like cruciferous plants were out. Uh, nightshades were out. Any kind of nuts were out. Beef was out. Chicken was out. Like I decided like a very, very limited diet. So when I hit about 13 years of age and I started to outgrow a lot of these allergies, I was like tasting food for the first time like I'd never tasted food before. In a lot of ways, it was the truth. So to me, it was just, you know, like I'd been in a cave. Like my palate had been locked up in a cave. And so I, I'm just tasting these things. And to me, it was just like this light bulb moment that's really enjoyed food. I just really enjoyed like the pleasurable sensation of putting, you know, tasting food and textures and temperatures. And I love to go out to eat. I, I was never a kid who, you know, wanted to order off the kids menu. I was getting the, the most adventurous, most expensive thing on the menu and just wanted to just taste everything because, you know, I, I had such a like a limited ability to try new foods when I was growing up. So when I was 13 years old, I, I just really kind of fell in love with cooking. And, and, you know, and so there was like a couple of things on there was like MTV that was kind of coming on. And then there was PBS and there was about three or four other channels. And that was really about it in like early cable days. So on Saturdays, depending on where you lived in the country, because most of the schedules are different, you would get a selection of PBS cooking shows. And it was always Julie Child. It was always Jacques LePan. It was always Justin Wilson from Louisiana and uh, a, few, a few other people, Martin Yan. And, and so that early PBS crew. And I just really loved watching them. At the same time, I love punk rock music and skateboarding and, you know, going and hang out with my friends and, and just being, you know, hooligans. But you could cook. 
but I could cook, which is great, great because I would make cheese sauces and hollandaise sauces and, and, you know, make peppercorn sauces and, and get into my parents' stash of red wine, cook with that. And just, there was always dirty dishes that I was creating in the kitchen. And I just had a good time doing it. You know, it was just, it was super fun. And and so that, so being a latchkey kid, one side of it, if you happen to be a latchkey kid, people that are listening, um, you kind of know what I'm talking about. So it kind of feels a little sad, but on the other side of that, that's, you know, the catalyst that, you know, kind of gave me the energy to figure out how to feed myself and learn how to be a chef. What was your father's profession? My dad's a very, very interesting guy. He's, he's had a lot of professions over his life. He's retired now, but uh, he was an advertising executive for a really long time. He sold insurance for a long time. He ran pizza restaurants. I mean, my, my dad's done a bunch of things. And your mom? My mom, is, she's, she's also retired too, but she was an accountant, which is kind of an interesting transition to like the television side of it. Because like when my mom, she was the head accountant or bookkeeper, or whatever you want to call it, for the local NBC station in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, WYFF, NBC in Greenville. And she would take my older brother and I to uh, work with her on the weekends. And we would just run amok. We just run around the entire studio. So we would uh, sit in the director's studio as he was cutting the news live. You know, it's like, give me camera four, going back to camera one, camera four, and five, four, three, two, one, and close, and you're on. And and so I would just watch this guy do this stuff, and I was just fascinated by all of it. You know, just like the smell of electronics in a control room. To me, I think it's kind of exciting. You could have had your own cooking show at 15. <laughs> probably, you know, probably in a way. I, I, I don't know what you would have called it, but yeah, I just, I just loved it. So the transition that back into like a magical moment when I was 25 years old, uh, when I got my first shot on Food Network in 1996, 25 years ago, that moment of being in that dark studio where I felt incredibly comfortable, which I thought was sort of an interesting competitive edge. Because I just, as soon as I walk in the door, I'm like, I've been in a television studio as a guy who, you know, just cooked full time at that point in my life. I knew what I was doing, oddly enough. So what about school? When you went to school, what were your subjects that mattered to you? Because, you know, was science of interest to you because of all the cooking and measuring and stuff? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a weird kid. I wasn't really interested in school, honestly. Because like, I started when I was 15 years old. I sort of, you know, moved on from skateboarding into, you know, getting a car. Because at some point in time, uh, girls don't find skateboards particularly interesting. But, but boys who have cars are very interesting. And so I bought a car for my grandfather in, in North Carolina, it was a 1966 Comet Capri. The thing was a tank. Like the thing weighed, I don't know, I think weighed 5,000 pounds. It was just a huge gas guzzling old 1960s car. And I bought it for 500 bucks. Uh, I stripped out the stereo system. I put it in this, like this hoopty, you know, super loud, dumb, you know, tape cassette uh, system. In it, and it was my car. So I, I had to get a job to pay for it. So I started washing dishes in the nicest restaurant in my hometown. It was called the Fish Market. And it was like, it was a, I would say it's a white tablecloth, but tablecloths were pink. And uh, and all the waiters wore bow ties and it was a seafood restaurant. So they had like seafood from all over the world. And it really changed my life in a lot of ways because I, I fell in love with the show of being in the kitchen. I fell in love with the energy, the hustle. You know, it was uh, an environment where I was treated as an adult. And so I, I just really appreciate that. So, you know, coming from a, a busy family where you really had to compete for attention on a daily basis, all of a sudden, you know, I'm just in a, a regular situation with other people that kind of respect my contribution. And I thought that was kind of very satisfying as a young person to be, you know, considered like that. And I was a great dishwasher. I was a really, really good dishwasher. And then I moved from dishwashing to prep and to, you know, working the line. And so that I just really absolutely love that whole uh, part of my life. It was, it was amazing. And then plus the chef drove a Harley and all the women would come to the kitchen and say hi to him. And I, I thought hmm, there's something to what that guy's working on there. I thought it was kind of cool. And, and so around that time, 
I really decided I just want to be a chef. So, so to answer your question, as far as like school goes, nothing was as interesting to me as working in the kitchen and working in restaurants. Nothing. So I graduated from high school and then went to culinary school in Charleston, South Carolina, as fast as I could. So you knew what you wanted to do. Like, who were your idols and who were you emulating? You know, there was a couple of chefs that were making headways. And again, this is, you know, pre-internet, right? So the only thing that you could possibly, the only information vehicles that were out there was Gourmet Magazine, you know, cookbooks, if you can get your hands on them. And, uh, and that was about it. So hearing whispers of what was happening with Wolfgang Puck in Los Angeles and hearing whispers about this new hotshot chef named Emeril Lagasse in New Orleans, Louisiana, and hearing whispers about Jasper White, Boston, and, and all these like m- major chefs around the country that were doing like regional cooking and you know, really expressing how different and diverse culinary habits and cooking styles around the country were. Like to me, I was like, that's amazing. Like, that's just like chefs out of Chicago, chefs out of Dallas. So like really sort of jumping into that and then, you know, subscribing to food magazines, like industry magazines as a kid, like that was uh, really, really important to me. And reading about what was happening in the culinary scene in Miami, like I'd never even been to Miami. I'm like, because I was just, you know, a kid in upstate South Carolina. Like, I I just felt like, okay, that's my tribe. Like, that's my tribe of people. Like, they don't know me yet and they don't know I'm coming, but I'm coming. And uh, I just committed to, you know, I used to sleep with uh, Lydia Bastianich's cookbooks under my pillow, you know, really studying, mastering like really great Italian cooking, hopefully through osmosis, but really just, you know, diving my head into cookbooks and cooking and cookbooks and cooking and trying to do that as much as we possibly can. And, and so it, it was just my thing. And so I, I don't know if there was a very specific moment where the light bulb just popped on and I said, OK, this is this is it. I think there's a few stages where I felt like, okay, I'm on the right track. Like the world was sending me really positive signals. But all along, I just knew I was making the right step. And so to go back to what I was saying earlier, as far as the convincing, you just have to, you know, convince your parents that, you know, what you're doing is the right thing. And where you want to go with all of this is, is going to be a fruitful career. Because it was considered very blue collar. You know, to go work in a kitchen was considered very blue collar. So let's go back to college for a bit, the culinary school. What was that? So you go from high school to this culinary school. Now you have everybody who's basically has the same passion. Was that just another turning point for you to just turn up the volume on this is the right thing? This is my destiny? Yes, it was. Because uh, again, I think trying to find your tribe in life is really important, especially if you're, you know, if you're starting out in life and you want to jump into a very specific industry. I think finding those people that see the world the same way you see it, I think it's incredibly important. So you feel like your, you know, your hopes and fears and dreams are validated by a community of people that give you support. So moving into culinary school in Charleston, a I just love Charleston, South Carolina. Have you been there? Have you been to Charleston? Yeah, it's a great city. Yeah. So I was there for about five years uh, and I've been there a thousand times, but I lived there for about five years going to college. And, and it was just a very, very special place. And it was in 1989, 1990 when I went to culinary school for the first time. But so they had this thing. It was so you could if you had if you could pass an exam, I'll, I'll come up with the terminology for it. But if you pass an exam, you can take your entire first year in three months. So I t- took the advanced standing. That's what it was called. Uh, so I, I took the test. And because when I was 19 years old, going to culinary school, I had already had four or five years worth of restaurant experience. So everything on there, I'm just like, boom, 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 aced it and got selected for advanced standing. So I took my entire first year in three months in the summer and just smoked it. So you went to New York right after school? So I got a culinary degree and then I stuck around for another two and a half years and got a, a bachelor's degree in hotel restaurant management. And then I moved to New York City with $2,600 in my pocket. 
I signed an extra loan check and I, I didn't use it. I put that money in my pocket and I moved to New York City with all the junky stuff that was in my apartment. And I got like a little second floor walk up in Red Hook, Brooklyn before it was hot. Now it's like super trendy right on Carroll Avenue and around the F stop right there on the, on the F train. And I got a stage at Oriel, which, you know, Charlie Palmer, who's still a dear friend of mine, uh, he's relocated up to Healdsburg. Uh, we just did dinner together a couple of weeks ago. And that was my first big job in New York City. And, and it wasn't even, I didn't even have a job. I moved there with what they call a stage, which is just an opportunity to show up and work for free to prove that you can even be there. So Louis Osteen, who was the chef at Louis's Charleston Grill in Charleston, contacted Charlie Palmer and say, I got this hotshot chef kid that wants to move to New York City so bad. Can you give him a stage? And so they connected, spoke to Charlie on the phone, had a date, moved to New York City, didn't have a job. I had enough money for first month's rent, last month's rent, a security deposit, and about $500 until I got a check. And I didn't have a job. But overall, it sounds like you're pretty confident and determined. You know, everything was clicking. I just knew I was in the right place at the right time. I just knew it's exactly where I wanted to be. And Oriel, working with Charlie, he was my guy. He's, you know, still is one of the most powerful culinary names in the world. And, and I enjoyed my time with him. I worked with him at, um, at two different restaurants, at Oriel and then at the Chef's Cuisinier Club on 23rd Street. And worked there with him until, you know, I had this other opportunity. And, and, and I really am passionate about Italian cuisine as one of you know, the foundations of how I think about cooking. And I met a woman named Marta Pulini, and she was the executive chef of a restaurant called Mass 61, which is the basement of Barney's. She invited me to be sous chef. And I, I leapt at that opportunity to go work with her at a very prestigious place. And collectively, we got three stars in the New York Times. So Tyler's single-minded focus on succeeding as a chef in New York paid off. But after a string of high-profile kitchen jobs, another sort of opportunity came his way, and it would change his life forever. So let's talk about the Food Network. So how did you get discovered? When I was 25 years old, taking on the executive chef position in a very splashy, very expensive restaurant in New York, I was definitely, I had ambition in my eyes, but my ability uh, needed some work. But I jumped on the opportunity, and I just took it, and you know, probably right in the middle of my second year, we're getting buzz all over the city. And uh, one of the executives from Food Network happened to walk in and have dinner. And, you know, I, I put on my my second coat, my second chef's coat was nice and pressed and clean and walk around the restaurant and shake hands and say hi to everybody and pass out my business card. And um, her name was Lori Green. And she was uh, a programming director at this new cable network called Food Network. And, and it was a big deal, right? And, and, it, and this is when Food Network was such a tiny space. It was at 1180 Avenue of Americas. And she just said, this was really delicious. Could you come in and do a segment? Are you interested in being on television? And I just jumped at the opportunity. And so the next week I showed up, I prepped my own food. I was there an hour early and I nailed it. I just nailed it. It was like second nature. I just knew exactly what three and a half minutes was all about. It was a segment on a live broadcasting show called In Food Today with uh, David Rosengarten and Donna Hanover, who's Giuliani's ex-wife. And you know, it was a live news show about food they did every night at six o'clock. And then uh, at the end of that, they would have a chef demo from some chef in the New York area. And and I just hopped on and just destroyed. It was great. We did this like really delicious morel dish. You know, it was seasonal. It was Italian. I knew, I knew my facts and they asked me to come back the next week. So between 1996 and 2000, 1996 and 1999, I was the fill-in guy. So every time 
Sarah Moulton would want to go on vacation. I would take her show over. I was a guest on everybody else's show, like Ready, Set, Cook and Chef Du Jour and all these like really early Food Network programming shows. And it was just there. And so just building up FaceTime. And I was starting to get recognized on the street and people were like, oh my God, I saw you on TV, and, and, which was fun. And in 1999, they offered me my first full-time show and it called Food 911. And I was executive chef of cafeteria at, at that point. And it was this moment where I said, okay, now this is a very interesting pivot in my life. I'm about to make a decision that I, I don't know if I, you know, if the TV thing didn't work, I could always go back in the kitchen and cook. I can get a job anywhere. And I always feel that way. Like if this whole thing goes away, I'll go back and work in a restaurant someplace and I'll be totally happy. It'd be totally fine. And I, I knew that was the situation, but I knew if I didn't take this opportunity for what it was, I would regret it for the rest of my life. Because it felt like I was given a gift. And so I, I just jumped at the opportunity, quit my job, and started shooting television full time. I never looked back, not even for a second. But it was a big moment in my life. I felt like, okay, this is, you know, there's only like 12 of us in the world. I mean, 12 people on, on planet Earth that had cooking shows. And I was one of them. And it was very honored to have it. Well, when you think about what you're describing earlier, but when you're a young child to a teen and you're watching cooking shows, and now you're leading a cooking show, I mean, that must have felt pretty spectacular it did man did it like i again it was early days on food network if you go back and watch the programming like the lighting's awful and the editing's awful and the sound's terrible and, and it was very gorilla it was just me and two guys that, like i think had like camcorders like it was just nothing right and what we did it and we kind of pieced it together and you know, we were yeah, but it, and it was a hit the show was on for six years we did 90 episodes a year for six years where we emma Lagasse's lead in for four of those six years and uh, it, it was it was just a great time to i was the first chef on food network to not wear a chef's coat just because i i felt like it was some sort of invisible superman cape like you know i've got a chef's coat and i can cook and you don't so you can't so i i just took on the position of like the everyday guy next door who could make a great standing rib roast and knew how to make a great holidays. And at that point in my life, I, I knew enough to have a really good dialogue about most cuisines in the world because I'd, I'd spent my entire life studying. So it was, it was wonderful. And we did it for six years and had a time of my life. We were just traveling around. and Because I, I grew up in South Carolina. I'd been there. I'd never been to Europe until I was like 19 or 20 years old. You know, had been to Washington, D.C. once. Had been to New York City once. Had never been to California. I'd never really gone anywhere. You know, so it was like to me, South Carolina, straight to Manhattan. And that was it. And all of a sudden now I'm, I'm traveling the country and I'm getting a chance to try those amazing restaurants because I got money in my pocket, too, which is wild. That was the wildest thing. I was like actually having money for the first time. And, you know, traveling and tasting all these like, great chefs I just read about, right? Like first time when you're 25 years old and you're like a baller and you roll in, you go to Spago for the first time or you go to, you know, you go check out uh, Suzanne Goen with Luke. I mean, her, her, her restaurant just opened up and she was, you know, sort of this new transitional period. Coming to San Francisco and trying Alice Waters food, Try going to check out Dean Faring in Dallas, who was just the master and Stephen Piles and all these like really incredibly talented chefs who were just you know, masters of their region. And that was just, a, it was it was an amazing time in my life. I felt very fulfilled. I felt very lucky. And, uh, you know, I went from making, God, 65000 bucks a year as executive chef of a restaurant in New York City to making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> it was just like, I remember, I remember the first time I, I got my bank balance and I had over 100000 bucks in the bank. And I'm like, holy shit, look at me. The next few years were big ones for Tyler. He got his first behind-the-counter cooking show called Tyler's Ultimate. He also continued with his traveling shows and somehow found the time to add cookbook author to his resume. Between 2003 and 2014, 
He published 11 books and had introduced his own line of cookware. But while he was busy becoming a cottage industry, he also met his future wife, who lived in California. And for the first time, he started to think about leaving New York. They bought a house in Marin County in 2007, and by 2010, he had opened his first restaurant outside of New York City, Wayfair Tavern in San Francisco. Around that time, he also ventured into another segment of the food industry, launching a line of organic baby food called Sprout. So you're in San Francisco, you're well-received, not just San Francisco, but, you know, worldwide now. And your entrepreneurship kicks in even more when you're in the Bay Area. You had a baby food business and more Mm -hmm. cookbooks. Mm -hmm. What do you think was driving this additional inertia and entrepreneurship when you came to California? Well, you know, when you're famous, the phone rings. And so there's a a blend between fielding opportunities and creating opportunities. So it's somewhere in the mix. Uh, And, you know, we've had a few agents and managers and that kind of stuff. So we we had a little bit of an advantage just because we had the bandwidth and the personnel to be able to take an idea and then develop that into a concept that's pitchable and then bring in a partner and then sell it and then sell that. And so we, we've done that a couple of times and, and continue to do that. We're still inventing new businesses today. And so I, I think that's been one of my strong suits of survival because it hasn't always been easy. Like 2008 was devastating for us. The pandemic was almost devastating for us. And so I, I think my ability to stay alive, uh, someone who's self-employed technically, which is another name for an entrepreneur, is just to be able to reinvent yourself over and over again. And so I never want to waste a thought because somewhere in that idea, and everyone has them, everybody has a million dollar, multi-million dollar, if not a billion dollar idea in them, everybody. So I've gotten really good at the discipline of harvesting my own thoughts. And I've, I've got a notebook here right in front of me. Like I have, I have hundreds of these notebooks. And sometimes the pages are just kind of gibberishy stuff, but the, there's like a little nugget of a note. Like, wouldn't it be cool if you take this idea and that idea, mash them together and do something new with it? And we do that every day. Let's talk about the restaurant industry after COVID or during COVID. So you've done great. You said you're going to do better this year than you did last year, but not everybody has. And so a lot of smaller, you know, family restaurants, even restaurant chains have struggled. What do you think's next to the, the future, you know, of restaurants or food trucks going to be like the new thing and ghost kitchens? Can you speak to that? So there's a retail apocalypse happening coast to coast right now. Like San Francisco, you know, if you drive around the city, There's so many abandoned spaces right now. It's insane. New York City is the same way. New York City is probably worse. L.A. And honestly, we really, really need a a big market correction, to be honest with you, because the the industry didn't work in 2018. People were scrapping on smaller and thinner margins, and there were line items and lease deals where landlords insisted on taking a piece of your profit, not just your base rent, but then also wanted a piece of the, the sales as well. And, and so the asking operators to live off uh, next to nothing while we're producing you know, value for their building. So they've got an exit strategy and producing a service for the community because you can come eat here. But having you know, something where you really just can't live off what it is, like, like restaurants are under attack. And then in San Francisco was kind of interesting, too, because a lot of tech companies were siphoning off top talent. And because, you know, wow, I can make $60,000 more a year working for Twitter or working for Google or working for, you know, Pinterest or whatever. And their cafeteria, I get weekends off, I get stock bonuses and, and I don't have to work nights. Yeah. You know, I, okay. 
know, like, so I'm never going to be the world's greatest chef, but maybe I wasn't going to be anyway. And so like a lot of these people kind of moved into the tech sector. But here's the thing about it. If you're a smart cookie, and if anybody listening to this podcast, there's lots of opportunity out there now. So I, I think there's a really great once in a generation, no joke, once in a 25 year generational opportunity to go in and scoop up some of these places for pennies on the dollar from a lease structure standpoint, write your own ticket and get a place that's fairly built out already. So instead of going to construction, which is the most expensive part of, you know, laying pipes is the most expensive part of doing a restaurant. But now you're thinking about, okay, this is going to be an interior decorating job. So instead of two and a half million bucks, I could probably open this place for 250,000 and just reskin it, rebrand it, open it up and kind of, you know, start these places on the cheap. And so I, I think that's kind of the upside of this, that I think if, if you still have it in you from in the restaurant industry, there are some really good deals out there right now. And there are to go and shape the next new future and be on the cusp of the next economic upswing. So and you're a food entrepreneur in residence at Johnson & Wells. Is that going to be part of your narration and teaching the next generation of restaurateurs and cooks, like not just the how-to, but the survival tools as well? Uh, yeah. So thank you for bringing this up. I'm very excited about this. So Johnson & Wales University is my alma mater. And so now I think it's really important that we start to really harvest and dial in the next generation of up and coming talent. And when I was in culinary school, no one would ever come to see us. Like, even in Charleston, like we never had a visiting chef. We never, you know, no one ever came and gave us a lecture on what life is like on the front line. Like nobody ever did any of those things for us. And so to me, I, I just feel like, wow, I would want this because I just felt like you know, as soon as you get out of college, what you just went through and what you just took on enormous amount of debt for, it doesn't mean anyone's going to pay you for it. And now you have to feel your way around in the real world. And so I, I think having a course in college that's about the real world and about entrepreneurism and, and about, you know, having like the safe place where you can, you know, flush out ideas and then hear other people flush out their ideas in real time. And then at the end of the course, the class is going to have fairly polished and very sophisticated business models that they can in turn go raise money on. And that's my thought, is to be a calibrator for their ideas and to give them real-time feedback on what's going to work and what's not going to work. Because for every mile of road you lay, there's two miles of ditch on either side. So it's my job, or at least I, I hope it's my job, is to try to keep the kids out of the ditch as much as possible and, and have that opportunity for them that wasn't there for me when I was in school. Wildfires of California have been pretty brutal. Let's talk about what you've been doing with the World Central Kitchen. So I work with Jose Andreas with World Central Kitchen, and uh, and Jeff Bezos just gave him a hundred million dollars last week. And so we are the World Central Kitchen's point team here in Northern California when fires break out. As a matter of fact, we've had two phone calls in preparation for what is now uh, a fire on, on the Oregon border, which is burning out of control. There's two new fires up in Butte County, which are getting big. There's a fire in Yolo County, which is in between Sonoma and Marin that started to kind of get crazy, too. Like, we just live in this perpetual fire state now, like where, you know, there's fires every year. And so with that, because they're, they're not they're moving out of deep forested woodland areas into, you know, because of urban sprawl, they're, you know, taking out communities every season. So we just want to position ourselves to be there available for our neighbors in Northern California when these things happen. And so we have a, a really deep, very efficient response team that can move into a location anywhere three, four hours away in a big circle and feed six, 7,000 people three meals a day. So that is, it's taken us a couple of years to get to that point, but we have the ability to do that and we just do it. So that's who we are. 
We work with the state of California. We work with Jose Andreas and his incredibly competent team, World Central Kitchen. So it's their logistics and our muscle. And we just help people. You have played so many roles and done so many amazing things. And then comes along Uncrushable. And now you're a filmmaker. Yeah. So in 2017, which was probably, I think, going back and look at that in retrospect, was the year that the fire season started to tip. So in 2017, and in California, we have fires every year. But the big fire that happened, the wine country fire in 2017, was the biggest fire that California had experienced since 1965. So it was devastating. And a lot of people felt that it was going to be the fire of the century. And, uh, you know, some of you would tell your grandkids about that happened. So we, we shot a documentary film about it called Uncrushable. It's about the human spirit. And it was an amazing movie. We were in nine film festivals in 2019, which is great. It was a real, you know, scratching this for me as a storyteller, because I've just been a big film buff my whole life. I, just, I love movies and I working in television for 25 years. We're pretty good at capturing content. So I pitched the state of California a documentary on this. And, and so we could use this as not only a cautionary tale of what was happening in the future, but as a, just a point of reference and record. So we had a half a million dollar budget and we went and shot, spent every penny of it. <laughs> and, and we went and made this really amazing story on the human spirit of our neighbors here in California. And it was an honor to be able to shoot that. And really, really sad too, because like after that, the 2018 fire was bigger, the 19 fire was bigger than that, the 20 fires are bigger than that, the 21 fires, hopefully, fingers crossed, are under control, but it's looking like the season's going to be early. So now let's talk about another project you're working on, the UN World Food Program. Did that come out of the work that you're doing with the wildfires? Well, if the pandemic has proven anything, it's how interconnected we are around the world and how pipelines of products become inflation all over the world if these things become blocked up or if, if people can't grow food to trade on an economic global level, they're not sustainable. And, and then it tiptoes into political strife. And, and so I think it's a butterfly effect. So what happens anywhere in the world affects everybody in the world. So we partnered with the United Nations World Food Program. I'm an ambassador with them. And so we're putting together teams of people right now to address, you know, not only climate change, but famine specifically, and to see what we can do with that. And to make sure, because right now, with hands down, there's enough food grown to feed the world. There's no doubt about it. It's just not managed properly. And so I, I think a lot of people, a lot of communities, a lot of countries, and a lot of really just unbelievably dire situations out there, I think need a clearer lens. And I think their stories need to be told. So our filmmaking team is going to be working with the United Nations World Food Program and telling some of these stories in the future. We could be hitting the road very soon uh, and going to some fairly dangerous places to shoot some of this stuff. But um, I think the world needs to know about it for sure. World hunger is something that we can solve through technology and innovation, or is it more resources and logistics and eliminating red tape? It's a lot of things, right? And there's no magic bullet. But I think there's several buckets of opportunity and kind of diving into all those and really sort of thinking about the two biggest buckets, which is sort of food waste right now, right? So it happens either at the farming level where farmers aren't using modern technology or they're not really using modern equipment or from an irrigation standpoint, from a harvesting standpoint. So there, there's a lot of waste that happens on the ground. And then the second half of it, which I think is the biggest culprit, is food waste at the grocery stores in America right now, right? Not even sort of outside in the world and different, you know, hotspots where not food waste, but there's famine, right? There's no, like all they get, they get rice and water. There's nothing else, right? But what happens to the grocery stores? And this is just sort of a, a first world problem. The tomatoes aren't beautiful or if the apples aren't beautiful, they go in the dumpster. 
So 40% of all food that ends up at a grocery store ends up in the dumpster. And then 30% of food that comes home ends up in the garbage can. So there's an enormous amount of food waste that happens on small micro levels uh, on a daily basis just because it's not pretty. And so I, I think there's a lot of different issues around that, that I think food could be distributed more equitably around the country in different pockets of what they call food deserts. And I think there's food waste. Um, and even in California here, because it takes 26 gallons of water to grow one head of romaine lettuce. So now that we're kind of into what some scientists are calling the beginning of a four or five year drought, like thinking through that sad head of lettuce in your crisper, wh- why would you let that rot? You got to use it. You got to use that stuff up. So a lot of this stuff kind of ends up in the garbage can. You know, there's good ideas and good intentions, but the stuff ends up in the garbage can or the recycling pile or compost pile or whatever it is. And, and there's no one big solution, but food waste, I, I think if we could focus just on what's happening here in America, I, I think it's a, it's a big problem. It's a big natural resource hog that sucks up a lot of energy for the stuff to not turn into nutrition and to end up in the garbage can. And uh, so those are some of the issues that we're working on with, with the UN. That was Tyler Florence. He won't take credit for this, but Tyler was one of the first well-known chefs to notice the food truck revolution in its early days after the financial collapse of 2008. It even inspired him to pitch the great food truck race to the Food Network, a show that has helped grow the phenomenon around the country. So the next time you're scarfing down a kimchi taco from that bright orange truck in a parking lot, you might just have Tyler Florence to thank. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.